is an Odyssey original. This is KDX In-Depth. I'm Rob Archer. And I'm Charles Feldman. Should teenagers be trained? You know, I could stop right there and a lot of parents <laughs> would go, absolutely. Right there, yes. Yeah, right there. Should teenagers be trained? But that's not the story. The story is, should they be trained before being allowed to use social media? We'll go in-depth. We'll take a look at whether CNN Sound Hall with former President Trump is more than just an attempt for ratings. Also, a major mystery deepens in Southern California. Don't fly away. You'll want to find out what it's about. And I'm informed by higher-ups that that was a hint. So is the hint fly away or California or mystery deepens? It remains to be seen, hence the mystery. Ah, okay. We start, though, with teens and whether they should undergo training to use social media. Dr. Tama Bryant is president of the American Psychological Association, which is calling for this training. Doctor, thanks for being with us. Thank you so much for having me. First of all, wouldn't you agree that, that if you're a parent, teenagers should be trained, period? There's so much that is required in us for for parenting, effective parenting and teaching preparation in every area. Okay, we're in agreement on that. But now let's move on to the the issue, uh, which is that you're advocating, right, that they should be trained for social media use. What do you mean by that? How, How would you train them? So it is uh, really important that we cover a number of topics with our teens. One is the importance of recognizing that there is misinformation and disinformation. Uh, Sometimes people can think, whether children or adults, that if they read something, it must be true, or if someone says it in a video, it must be true. And we know that there is a lot of misinformation that is spread online. And so helping them to think critically and to consider the source of the information. Uh, There are two websites developed by psychologists that can help with that. One is called GetBadNews.com. It's an online game that teaches players how to recognize when people are spreading false information. Another resource is SpotTheTroll.org. Uh, which was also developed by psychologists to teach kids how to recognize real social media users versus bots. And around that area, it's important for them to know that people are not always what they present themselves to be. A big one that we recognize is that people can pose as children or as other teens, uh, but they're actually adults. So those are some of the areas that we want uh, teenagers and other youth who are using social media to be aware of. So essentially, it's uh, training teenagers how to know what's real and what's not real on social media. But with the rise of generative AI, isn't that going to become more and more difficult, not just for teens, but for everyone? Certainly. It can be very challenging. And so really helping them with their critical thinking skills to think for themselves, to analyze, and also to come back and reflect with adults that they trust and know Another area besides spotting misinformation is helping youth not to be so centered on the number of likes. Uh, Those likes can come for a number of different reasons, but we find that if children are posting their pictures or their updates and aren't getting in comparison to some famous people, a large number of likes, they can come away really feeling uh, deflected and, and defeated. And so uh, really having conversations about what it really means to be liked or supported in real life by people who care about you and uh, that that 
not be the center of their experience, right. uh, the counting of the like. Who would have, in your view, the responsibility for conveying this knowledge to teenagers? Is it the, the parents, uh, schools? Schools are having enough problems nowadays teaching kids to do things like reading and writing. Um, so who, who has that responsibility? Right. So the way we talk through the guidelines, there are multiple responsible parties. So the parents definitely uh, have their role and we just want them to be empowered and informed. And I will say in the guidelines, we also talk about the benefits of social media for a number of youth. I think many times parents and others only see the downside uh, but for many young people, it can be where they find community, where they find support, where they find encouragement and connection. Uh, but along with parents, we also talk uh, to legislators and policymakers, as well as creators of these apps themselves. So I think we all have a role to play in trying to keep our children safe. All right. Thank you so much, Dr. Tama Bryan, president of the American Psychological Association, and calling for uh, teenagers to be trained. To use social, social media. media. <laughs> right. Before Donald Trump was elected president, he was on CNN like all the time. And then when he became president, he accused CNN of being the sort of king of what he called fake news. And he was gone from them for a long, 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 long time until tonight. <laughs> tonight he's back on, you guessed it, CNN hosting a town hall with us now is Peter Lowe, who is director for the Project on Ethics and Political Communication at George Washington University. Peter, thanks for being with us. Many thanks for having me back. So all morning I've been looking on and off at uh, CNN on the TV, and I see uh, a little tiny face of Donald Trump on the lower right-hand corner uh, promoting his appearance tonight. And I am using that word deliberately, appearance tonight on CNN. What do you make of, of this sort of controversy in a way of the day, but nonetheless critics who are saying that CNN is doing this not because he's considered a leading contender for the Republicans as president, uh, but because they are down in the dumps with ratings and they want to boost them? Yeah, you know, this whole thing brings to mind for me uh, Eminem's classic 2002 hit, Without Me. It, it's hard <laughs> to imagine this is about anything other than other than ratings. You know, um, we are eight months away from voting, so it's not a not about the Republican primary. He's the only Republican candidate invited. They haven't invited Governor Hutchinson, Senator Scott, Ambassador Haley or any of the others who are talking about getting in. It's you know, it's really hard to to see this as anything other than a way to draw attention on eyeballs to CNN. And, you know, what better way to draw attention than to invite the guy who lives on being the center of attention, Donald Trump, onto on your program. And could it be more about, uh, even more about ratings than we are aware of? Because I'm thinking of the fact that uh, Fox News had been taking bids for a while. Ever since the election in 2020, they lost some viewers because they correctly uh, called Arizona for Joe Biden early. Uh, they did get the call right, but some of their viewers did not like that. Some of their hosts did not like that. And then uh, they fired Tucker Carlson uh, because of some text issues, and they lost some more viewers for that. Is CNN looking at those Fox viewers out there and saying, you know what, uh, Fox has dropped the ball. We can pick up the Fox News ball and we can become Fox News. Is, is that part of the thinking here? Um, I don't know how tied it is to to Carlson's firing because apparently this this Trump town hall has been in the works for for a while. I think CNN will take the take the viewers wherever they can get them. 
And certainly if people are leaving Fox, you know, those viewers are up for grabs. I'm not sure people who are leaving Fox because they think Tucker Carlson was somehow driven out by big farmer or the deep state are going to be going to CNN. I think those those viewers are more likely to go to go to OAN or Newsmax or something. But CNN needs eyeballs, right? I mean, you, you've got to pay the bills. Um, this is a for-profit industry. Being respectful and respected by your colleagues is terrific. But, you know, if you're not moving merch, as Warren Zevon <laughs> has learned, you know, you don't sell records. Being respected doesn't get you into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. At some point, CNN needs viewers. Trump can drive viewers. Don't they all come out being sort of hypocrites on this, uh, CNN and Donald Trump? CNN, because when it was under different management and uh, they gave a lot of airtime to Trump, they claimed at the time it wasn't because of ratings, but because he was then a leading contender. And it was, of course, uh, during the primaries. Uh, And yet now it does seem as if they're doing it for ratings. And Donald Trump, of course, who, as I pointed out, uh, when he was in the White House, kept labeling them fake news. And where does he show up but on the place he calls fake news, which by definition, if he's on, makes him fake news. You know, following that logic trains may be a little more complicated (laughs) than than some of the Trump folks are going to want to embrace. It gets even worse than that. Donald Trump is suing CNN. So he's actively suing (laughs) The network, the the host, uh, Caitlin Collins, who's going to be hosting this, was at Daily Callers, a good conservative credentials, now at CNN. Donald Trump um, once kicked her out of the Rose Garden, tried to move her to the back of the White House briefing room, that, yeah. stormed out of an interview with her once. There's a lot of people. What, what the, the, the way this strikes me, the, the CNN Trump piece strikes me as – you know, Fox and Trump were a were a couple who had a bitter fight and a very public breakup at somebody else's wedding <laughs> and are now publicly dating each other's exes just to get back at somebody. <laughs> that is very good. I like that. <laughs> I, I, I don't think we can explain it any better than that. No, that was great. I that think was, that's that it. Terrific. All right. Uh, Peter Lois, thank you so much. Uh, director for the Project on Ethics in Political Communication, which kind of feels like an oxymoron a little Why? bit, doesn't it? Uh, political communication and ethics. Oh, well, yes. I mean, I mean, it's yes, hard to but, say. Yeah. But, but but his definition of what's going on, I, I thought was spot on. Yeah, just just brilliant. Right now, though, New York Republican Congressman George Santos has pleaded not guilty to federal charges alleging financial fraud. The allegations against him. Uh, began before the 2022 election, though. Grant Lally is publisher of the North Star Ledger, uh, Leader uh, newspaper in Santos's Long Island District. And it was the first to report on his financial issues before last November's election. Thank you so much for joining us. Great to be here, Rob and Charles. Thank you. So can you give us a rundown a little bit? We've heard a little bit of the story, but but how was he able to get through to the election when there were already these rumblings about uh, some of his story was not adding up? And then why didn't the Republican Party do a better job of vetting him? Well, the, 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 the key to understanding the election is that he was never supposed to win. This was a, originally this was a bad district for a Republican. He would normally not have gotten more than 40 percent of the vote. They couldn't get anybody else to run. And so he ran. Then, just before the election, four months before, the top court in New York threw out the gerrymander, drew all new districts. And suddenly he found himself in a very, very competitive district. And uh, Lee Zeldin was candidate for governor, was from Long Island, had 
big coattails, and he carried this guy in with him. Okay, but now, uh, yes, he is certainly uh, entitled to the presumption of innocence and, until proven otherwise in, in court. But he's already saying, as I understand it, that he is not intending to resign from Congress. He's not intending to not run again. Will people in his district, do you think, go along with that? No, people people can't stand him. I mean, it is it's a farce. It's a joke. Um, every other Republican uh, congressman from New York has demanded he resign, and and I think all but one or two have now said that they are going to positively vote to expel him as soon as possible. So you know he's on borrowed time already, and and he's not you know he's a pure fraud. I mean, everything he does is is a fraud. He's a longtime criminal petty criminal. Um, so no one works with him in Washington. No one meets with him here in New York. Um, he's invisible uh, because, and again, he doesn't care. He's he's in it for the money and the fame, and he's already negotiating with uh, with studios and with publishers for, for, for films and for, for books. Could a Republican win his seat in the next election, or has he damaged the GOP brand in that district? Well, those are both excellent points. Um, it Normally, a Republican would be very competitive. Uh, the new district is a pretty Republican seat. Uh, Lee Zeldin, who ran for governor as the Republican, uh, he got 58% of the vote in the district last year. Um, even even a very weak, some weak Republicans who are running as, as sort of sacrificial lambs. Uh, for instance, Chuck Schumer's opponent, even he won the district narrowly, but he won the district. So, yeah, no, it's a good district, but uh, people are so disgusted with uh, George Santos that they might take it out on the Republicans. Do you feel sort of, uh, you know, that we told you so because you kind of did tell people so? Yeah, we, we actually published um, we actually published a story that said we told you so. Oh, you did. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> so, <laughs> so he... Uh, yeah, I mean, it, 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 and look, some pe- quite a few people listened. Uh, you know, Lee Zeldin got 58 percent. Santos only got 54 uh, percent. So it was a four-point drop. Uh, you know, wasn't enough for him to lose the race. But a lot of people knew something was wrong. But, you know, a lot of people today, when they're voting, a lot of voters vote one party or the other. They just vote straight down the line. They aren't really informing themselves about who these different candidates are. Mm. Well, it's uh, words of wisdom for everyone. Uh, Grant Lally, publisher of the North Star Leader, a newspaper in Santos' Long Island district. You're listening to KDX In-Depth. I'm Rob Archer, along with Charles Feldman. Governor Newsom has addressed the reparations issue following the task force's vote to approve its recommendations for compensation. And uh, one could say it was a bit noncommittal. We did reach out to the governor. We were given a statement that says the state has already been addressing many of the recommendations, but it doesn't give a clear indication Newsom would support cash payments. Hernan Molina is an LA-based political analyst for Estrella TV and host of Dos Tipos Politicos, a weekly Spanish-language podcast about current political affairs. Thanks so much for joining us. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. So what do you make of uh, Governor Newsom's kind of tepid response? Well, I think it was something that was to be expected, given the massive 
financial implications and political implications these recommendations could have on the state, but also in the U.S. And for someone like Newsom, who has political aspirations and is one of the uh, uh, United States Democratic Party's uh, rising stars, he would be very careful, he should be very careful, and I think he's very careful about what he says or what he promises or what he delivers on, because anything uh, that he does in California will be examined at the national level when, whenever he declares candidacy in a future presidential contest. And obviously, uh, there are political ramifications and obviously financial to the United States and obviously to California. So in, so in other words, what you're saying is that he's concerned that if he runs for president someday, what he says that may go over big in California may not go over so well in, I don't know, like Georgia. Yeah, imagine there are states that, uh, and we saw it in West Virginia during the gubernatorial uh, campaign, where critical race theory played a big part of scaring people that, that, that young kids were being basically told that white people were bad people. Uh, and, that, and West Virginia was not the only state where that narrative was being built by the GOP. So imagine what reparations would, how, how would they be received by these uh, electorate and by the people, how, how would candidates use it uh, against Democrats who may support in concept the reparations? Because uh, like the governor said, uh, reparations go beyond the uh, financial cash, pay, cash pay, payments. There are policies, land use policies, for instance, educational policies that could be implemented to change uh, the wrongs that African-Americans have endured for so many years. Uh, and, and this is something that uh, could go uh, sideways. You know, all uh, the road to, to, to heaven is, is paved with, uh, the road, road to hell is paved with good intentions, they say. And this is, I think, uh, one of those um, issues that could really go sideways really fast. Right. But in your opinion, though, this this he might be trying to find this middle ground that might be more uh, uh, more beneficial to him if he's running on a national stage. Is the idea that like it goes beyond cash payments? Is that a political line that might play if he's talking about uh, addressing uh, the systemic problems rather than cash repayments? It plays very well in progressive states. In other states where, obviously, if he were to be a candidate for president, he would have to uh, appeal, particularly to independent voters, not obviously to the GOP base who is mostly married to Trump and potentially to the Sanchez and other candidates. Um, he would have to really find a middle ground in, in order to obviously take care of his constituency, the Democratic Party, the African-American vote, which is largely Democratic, and then to to look fair and just to those who are not African Americans, but support uh, some sort of reparation, historical reparation to this community that has been so wrong for so many years. He, you mentioned that there are two issues here: one, what the governor says and doesn't say, and then there's the issue of of money. Although the governor quite correctly has pointed out that reparations need not be just monetary based; it, there could be other things. What other things could there be that he might be more comfortable backing, if not the outright cash outlay? Well, uh, I think a good example is what happened during the pandemic, correct? How the state was trying to um, remediate historical issues of disparate uh, treatment and disparate outcomes, something that the Health Resources Services Administration has advocated for the longest time, for instance. 
how health services need to reach out every resident in the state and the same outcomes have to be achieved provided that we put the same tool. But we never put the same tool because we have counties that are poor and counties don't get the same resources who have had, uh, which have had, for instance, political advantages. So that's what I think the governor is talking about is making sure that, for instance, in LA County, all kids have the same access to good uh, educational facilities, to good resources, and that the outcomes are the same. And we know that they have not been the same. So those are the things that can be corrected that go uh, much uh, further than giving someone cash is setting up the conditions so that people have the same access and hopefully the same results, correct? It's also correcting some of the wrongs on the uh, policing system, for instance. We have um, a bias, unconscious bias in, in the policing model and in police officers, for instance. Those are things that have been worked on, need continue to be worked on, and will we'll need to be worked on in the future because obviously we are talking about generations of um, individuals who are in the justice system, in the law enforcement mm -hmm. agencies, who bring with them, obviously, their biases, as all of us have them. Right. Uh, thank you so much, Hernan Molina, an L.A.-based political analyst for Australia TV. Big mystery is puzzling bird lovers and pet store owners all across Southern California. Someone or someones are sealing parrots. 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 There have been several parrot thefts in Southern California in recent months. Might be the work of parrot pirates. Ooh. With us now is Michelle Martin, who owns Martin's Feed Barn store in Dana Point. She had two of her parents stolen that weren't even for sale. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. I actually had three parrots stolen. Three parents stolen. So yes. what is the possible value in stealing parrots, what does somebody get out of stealing a parrot? Can they resell it? Yes. So parrots have an extremely long lifespan. You know, they can live over 50 years, some up to 75, 80 years. And the retail value is thousands of dollars per bird, depending on the variety. So how did how did they steal it from from your store? I, I presume that you or, or other people who work for you are uh -huh. in the store. Did they come in at night and break in or how they did they? Did. They broke the window. So my store is on a corner and it's surrounded by a fence. So they climbed the fence and the front door is glass and they broke the glass and came into the store through the broken glass and they were in and out in less than a minute. There was two people. And they went straight for the birds. They stole all three, um, put them in backpacks, and then left. All right. You're going to think this question is cheeky, but it's really not. I'm actually okay. serious about this. If they find the parrots, mm -hmm. do, do the parrots pick up language clues fast enough that they could repeat something they heard the parrot thieves say thieves say, and and point the finger at somebody? In theory. In theory, absolutely. But the parrots realistically they have the mental capacity of say like a three to four year old child so they've been stolen and that whole thing was a trauma for them so they're going to be traumatized and they're probably going to shut down and be scared and uncertain and not do things they normally would do um for a while sometimes it can take them months to recover from a, a trauma that they've had now is this happening at other stores that you know about yes 
Yes. So I've, I've spoken to um, a woman. I can't forgive me. I can't forget. I remember her name right now, but she owns a store in Canoga park and her store was broken into and her birds were stolen as well. I know of other stores um, in Anaheim and in Riverside and Murrieta all the way down to the San Diego border. But is is this a fairly new thing? Because these these birds are, as you pointed out, they are quite valuable. Uh, Is this a new thing that's happening? I don't think it's a new thing. I think we're just becoming more aware of it and we're starting to connect the dots. You know, all of the victims of these thefts are starting to put two and two together and we're sort of banding together and talking to each other to try and get the story out. So I was interviewed by ABC News um, right after it happened. And I, before that even happened, I called all the local vets offices and any store that I know of that sells birds or bird things to try and get the, the, you know, if Mm. they had somebody come in with a new bird under suspicious circumstances or they couldn't really say where they got this bird from, you know, something like that. Right. Uh, is it are there electronic devices that you can put on the birds to track them or do they take to that? You can absolutely put a microchip in the bird. Um, that is very normal and common. Unfortunately, these parrots that I had had not been microchipped, so I don't have a way to identify them electronically. Are, are these parrots, your parrots, are, are they still capable of flying? And if so, if they manage to get away, would they be smart enough to know how to return? No. So, uh, yes, that potentially, I think almost every bird has the potential to fly, but birds that have been raised in captivity don't necessarily know how to or if they do fly say they get scared and get startled they can fly up but a lot of them don't know how to fly down so that's why a lot of birds get trapped in trees wow. um, birds because they don't know how to fly down because they just don't fly on a regular basis right uh do the birds uh, that were stolen did they know any specific words that were kind of special to them that you would be, that someone would be able to identify the birds if they were saying that word Absolutely yes all three of them had uh vocabularies and so, you know the african gray had a very large vocabulary and would say a lot of things and sometimes you know, he would say something and then you wouldn't hear that word or that noise again for a few months. So he was selective. Um, but absolutely, I think if I was to walk into a room and either any of the three birds were there, I think they would immediately respond to me. Do you get the sense that law enforcement takes this seriously enough uh, that they are pursuing this with all they have? I think that the investigator in Dana Point that's handling my case specifically is. I feel very satisfied with him. I think he's trying his best. Um, I don't think there's a lot of communication between all the various police departments. So, you know, if somebody's getting a bird stolen in Ventura, he's not necessarily saying, oh, hey, let me call Orange County and let them know. So it's hard for, I guess, sort of like a, a statewide network or a national network. I I mean, unless we get the FBI involved, but really is the FBI going to be interested in stolen birds? All right, Michelle, uh, we wish you the best of luck. We hope you we get those uh, birds recovered. 
Thank you so much. All right. Thank you. Uh, Michelle Martin owns Martin's Feed. Barn store in Dana Point had three parrots stolen that weren't even for sale. But, you know, the most, I thought, interesting thing she said was that uh, I, I had no idea that a bird could figure out one that was in captivity, could figure out how to fly going up, up, but can't figure out how to fly down. coming back down. I would imagine, were I a bird, yes. that I could flap my wings and I'd go up, but if I wasn't used to flying, I wouldn't understand that I used that same process to get back down. So you would be like a stupid bird. I would be a stupid bird. Yes, if okay. those birds are the intellectual equivalent of three to five years old, I'd be like a six-month-old <laughs> baby who'd had brain damage or something. I don't know. Uh, but that's KNX in Death for today. We'll be back tomorrow at 1 p.m.